Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got another news show for you this week because we've got a whole bevy of interviews uh, in the docket that should be coming out starting next week. So I wanted to get another news show in before we did that. Uh, there's still plenty to talk about, things I didn't cover last week I want to cover this week, and some other stories. For example, Android 11 is now out, uh, as well as iOS 14. Uh, and I'm not going to go through all the features, but I am going to touch on some of the cool privacy and security features in both of those. And like I had three uh, three articles last week about Apple, I've got three articles this week about Google. Uh, some good, some bad, and some kind of in between. <laughs> so uh, one is a, kind of an interesting look at how they interact with the World Wide Web Consortium, or often called the W3C, uh, which is an internet body that works together with you know a lot of big companies and organizations working together to try to improve the internet. And Google has a lot of say in that, and it's not always for your benefit. Google's Chrome browser, which I do not recommend using, is, however, coming out with an interesting new feature that I want to talk about. And the Google Play Store is now banning stalkerware, which is a subject we covered in depth with uh, Eva Galperin from EFF some time ago. That's a great episode to go back and listen to. Pretty creepy, but we're going to talk a little bit about some bans on stalkerware that hopefully will help. I've got a story about how the uh, the FBI, it turns out in some leaked documents, are worried about the new Ring video doorbells and similar other doorbells actually working against them, which is kind of funny given some of the other stories I've talked about. Facebook has decided to ban deepfake videos ahead of the 2020 election, which may or may not be actually viable. And the U.S. House of Representatives has just passed an IoT security bill that is very welcome. And I'll, even though it's only for government procurement, it should probably uh, benefit us all. And finally, I'll have my tip of the week. So lots to cover today. Uh, before we do, got some more news. My book is out, officially out, like everywhere out. You can get it on Amazon, which is where most people buy it. Uh, I believe it's on Barnes & Noble now, too. It's certainly been on A-Press. I should be getting a big box of my, my copies of the book from A-Press today. I cannot wait to get that. But here's a couple things for you. Uh, if you if you'd like, you can actually check out, get a kind of preview of the book. If you sign up for any, for my newsletter, now in addition to uh, a little pamphlet with my top five tips, I'm also giving away the first chapter of the book, uh, which includes a, a preface and the full table of contents, so you can actually see all 170 tips, uh, at least the titles of those tips, to give you a better idea of what all is covered by this book and can you know let, let you see my style and you know hopefully you'll see that. It's really, you know, I try to limit the jargon as much as possible. I try to make it fun to read, try to make it very conversational. So anyway, A-Press has given me the go-ahead to do that. So anybody who signs up for my newsletter will now get the first chapter of the book for free. And for those of you who are already newsletter subscribers, uh, you should have gotten an email over the weekend that has your link to that same thing, because I don't want you guys to miss out because you've already signed up. So everybody on the newsletter should have access to this now. And another benefit, of course, of signing up for the newsletter uh, right now is with the giveaway for the book, where I'm giving away five signed copies of the book and 10 digital copies of the book, is it will get you three entries in my giveaway. There's multiple ways to enter, and this this is the biggest one, really. This is the one that gets you the most points. Uh, listening to this podcast will get you two. So so those things alone will get you five entries. To do that, just go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, slash firewalls4, F-I-R-E-W-A-L-S, and the number four. It ends on October 3rd, so there's only a couple weeks left. Time to get in there. Uh, if you refer friends, which I think you can do as many times as you want, uh, you can get more entries for doing that. So you could really stuff the ballot box on that one. And another bonus for you listeners, the winners of that contest will be announced here on this podcast first. So Monday morning, October 5th, usually comes out around 5 a.m. Eastern time. I will be announcing the winners of the contest. And I won't use your full name. I'll just use your first name and uh, last letter and maybe like your, where you're coming from or something. And it turns out October 5th is special for another reason, a very personal reason, which I will tell you about after the show. So stay tuned for that. And now let's get into the news. So both Google and Apple have released updates to their mobile phone operating systems. Uh, Android 11 just came out. They used to have kind of cutesy dessert names like Oreo and Marshmallow and, and, and whatever for their code names for their releases. And now they just kind of gave up and they're going for boring old numbers. But, you know, that's fine. It's probably easier to easier to know what version you have when they're in sequential order. So anyway, Android 11 is now out. 
And uh, it's, of course, it's got plenty of features, but I, I want to focus here on the privacy and the security features. So let me go off just a, a few of those. First of all, they've got one-time permissions now. So when you grant applications access to your microphone, your camera, your location, some of these things that could be abused in other ways, you can now just say, okay, you can have it, but just once, one time, this time only. Uh, while this, I guess, isn't new, this has been around uh, maybe since Android 10. Uh, apparently, it was previously only for new apps downloaded for the Google Play Store. Maybe now they're going to force you to uh, uh, do this for all your apps the first time. But regardless, it's a great feature. Apple's had this for a while, and it's uh, it's really important that you limit permissions on stuff like this to only on a need-to-know basis, as we like to say. Another cool feature they've got, and I don't think iOS does this, is it will auto-reset your permissions for apps that you haven't used in, they say, months. That's kind of vague. I'm not sure what the exact limit is. But basically, if you've installed an app a long time ago and you gave it some permissions, uh, and then you forgot about it. It's just sitting on your phone. You, you You haven't cleaned up your apps, and it's still sitting there. That app still has all the permissions you gave it originally, uh, and it's possible that app is still gathering data right now in the background or just using up system resources. So those apps, after some period of time, uh, Android will now revoke all those permissions and force you to re-authenticate them. Uh, that's actually important for other reasons, too. A lot of times these apps are updated automatically in the background, uh, and they may have changed their privacy policies. They may be trying to do more with that data than they used to with the existing permissions. So that's really cool, and I hopefully, uh, actually, that'd be great for Apple to pick that up, too, in iOS. Um, quick security patches. This is huge, actually. This is one of the big problems with Android, and because the Android ecosystem is not direct to the consumer unless you happen to have a Google smartphone. You know, if you've got an LG or a Samsung phone, uh, and then you've, it's got to go, you know, any changes that Google puts out have to first be vetted by the, the manufacturers, uh, and then often have to then be vetted by your cell phone carrier. And that process could take forever. And sometimes those security patches don't get through at all. Uh, Google has been trying to mandate that the, the manufacturers have regular rollouts of security patches, but there's still that delay. And oftentimes the bad guys jump on these things right away. And just a delay of a week or two could be huge. And sometimes it's much longer than that. So Android or Google has, has been modifying Android to uh, basically carve out the really important parts of the operating system and make updates to those parts available directly from Google without having to go through any of that other rigmarole. And Android 11 makes that even better. A lot of the critical parts of the operating system could, uh, these patches for security things could be downloaded instantly, just like updating an app, bypassing the all that other red tape that I just told you about. And finally, Android, like iOS, is restricting access to your location information more. When you first install the app, it will give that app permission. When it asks for permission for location, it will only give it permission to work in the foreground. That is, when that app is the frontmost thing, like what you see when you open your phone. And then if that app wants to also check your location in the background when it's not in the foreground, uh, it will then have to come back and ask you for further permissions. And you can say no. Uh, you can say, I only want you to use it when you're in the foreground, or I only want you to use it this one time and never again, or I don't want you to have access at all. So that that's good. So similarly, Apple has just come out with iOS 14, though the new iPhones haven't come out yet. The new iPads have, and I think those are shipping with iOS 14, and you should be able to download iOS 14 uh, now. Uh, and there's some cool features in there too. I've covered these before, so I'm just going to cover them quickly here. One of the cool things they've got is the new uh, in-use indicator for your mic or your camera. So kind of like we're used to with other webcams that have a little green light when you're, uh, when the camera's on and running, uh, your iPhone now will have a little green light at the upper right corner, a little green dot uh, that'll tell you that your front or your rear camera is currently in use. Uh, it also now has an orange dot for whenever your microphone is in use. Uh, in other words, when either audio or video are being recorded by some app on your phone, which could be Apple itself. I mean, you could be using you know, your camera or a recording app that's built into the Apple iPhone or whatever, uh, which would turn those on. But if there's some app that's trying to record you in the background without your knowledge, or perhaps turn your camera on and try to get away with you know taking pictures or video without you being aware of it, uh, you will now at least have the uh, the indication that this is being done by these two little dots in the upper right-hand corner of your phone. One of the cool things, that the really cool things they did is Apple's taken the whole location thing to the next level because your location tells a lot about you. It really, really does. So any app that can get a hold of that can really track you. I mean, not just where you're going, but can often identify you from that. So one of the cool things that they've added to iOS 14 now is an approximate location. It's kind of a compromise. So, you know, if you've got a weather app and you'd like it to know where you are currently so it can tell you if there's about to be a storm where you are, 
you'd need to give it your location. But now you can just give it your rough location. It doesn't have to be your precise GPS coordinates anymore. Uh, Apple's basically broken down everything into like these 10 mile square grids uh, and given every one of those grids, you know, an identifier. And it just gives the app, if you tell it so, if you just want to give your approximate location, you can just give it, you can tell it that. And now the app knows roughly where you are, but can't like really track exactly where you're going, which is a really welcome development. That's awesome. You can also now limit access to photos. One of the permissions that some apps might ask for is uh, access to your photo library. Uh, And until iOS 14, it was all or nothing. Again, these are great kind of compromise measures that allow you to say, well, you can have access to some photos, but not all my photos. That's important, right? Um, You know, you might want to, you know, from Facebook, be able to import a picture from your library to send, but maybe there's pictures in your library that you do not want Facebook having access to. So anyway, that's that's another welcome uh, privacy development in iOS 14. Another really cool one that I actually, I don't know if I talked about this before, but this is a real big for Apple. I'm actually really shocked, pleasantly surprised that they're doing this. They now let you choose your default email and web browsing apps. Uh, until now, you couldn't change those at all. It had to be Apple's Mail app or it had to be Safari. Now you could go, you could install Firefox or DuckDuckGo's browser and go to it directly. But anytime you click the link anywhere on some other news app or whatever, it would automatically launch Safari. Well, now in the settings, you can actually choose which browser you want to launch, which is great. Um, and DuckDuckGo's browser and Firefox's browser I w- would be uh, what I would recommend, even though honestly Safari is pretty good for privacy too. But at least now you have a choice, which is great. Apple is requiring developers to post what they're calling privacy nutrition labels. Like we're used to seeing these now on the food we buy, that standardized panel that lists carbohydrates, you know, calories, proteins, sugars, all that stuff, uh, you know, and ingredients in in a format that is standardized so we can all, you know, learn what it means and they can't really kind of get dodgy about, you know, how, how they report this stuff. Uh, Apple's trying to do the same thing with privacy notifications and every app's going to come with a little icon based scorecard, basically, that kind of says what data is collected, how it's used in very simple, easy to read format and a standard format, which is which is helpful. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's currently only self-reported. So it's while it's required, every app developer gets to choose what's there. Now, I would hope there's going to be some enforcement or some way to, you know, for users to report you know, that the, that the nutrition label is wrong and, and the Apple would force the developer to fix that. Uh, also, hopefully in the future, they, you know, they can automate some of that and say, Hey, you, you said you, you're doing this, but you're actually doing this, this, and this, and you need to tell people that. So it's a step in the right direction, but, uh, I think it needs to still get better. And finally, we've talked about this as recently as last week, Apple was going to roll out this really cool new privacy feature that basically forced every app to make you opt in for third-party tracking. It couldn't be in the background anymore. You have to, they have to tell you they're doing it. And then you have the option to say no. That was supposed to come out in the iOS 14's initial release, but I guess there was a lot of pushback from particularly Facebook and other companies that make a lot of money off tracking you. Uh, and I don't know why Apple caved, to be honest. I don't know, but they did. So they're going to give developers more time to comply with that, and it'll come out in 2021, hopefully very early in 2021. I will certainly let you know uh, when that happens. All right, back to Google. Uh, a couple articles about them. Um, this is from CPO Magazine, Chief Privacy Officer is what CPO stands for. Uh, they got some really cool articles there. Um, I follow them on Twitter, and they have some great uh, news articles. And this is about how, behind the scenes, Google is, while they kind of say one thing publicly, when it really comes down to it, they are fighting updates to privacy standards in the, in, in the Internet. And they've got a lot of sway. Uh, let me read this article, and then you'll understand more what I mean. Throughout much of 2019, internet tech giant Google has attempted to portray itself as a public champion of web privacy, yet behind the scenes, a very different view of Google is emerging. In August 2019, at approximately the same time that Google was rolling out its much-hyped privacy sandbox privacy framework, it was also working to block efforts of the World Wide Web Consortium, also called the W3C, standards body to bolster the web privacy features of new technical specifications. Most notably, Google was the only member of the W3C to vote no to a proposed charter change for the Privacy Interest Group, or PING, a working group of the W3C dedicated to web privacy matters. Concerned that web privacy issues were being routinely ignored by many working groups of the W3C, the Privacy Interest Group sought to expand its charter such that it would have the ability to block any new technical specification that it felt would have negative impacts for web privacy. 
Ping, for example, had earlier voiced its concerns about the Internet of Things and how new IoT web standards failed to address important privacy issues. In response to the vote request on changing the Ping Charter, 24 W3C members voted yes, and Google was the only member to vote no. Since the W3C is based on a system of consensus, even a single no vote was enough to veto the proposal. So Google basically torpedoed a well-intentioned effort to inject a discussion of web privacy into more of the technical working groups of the W3C with a single vote. The 21-to-1 vote would seem to clearly indicate that Google is not quite as serious about web privacy matters as it would like the public to believe, and that Google is becoming increasingly isolated in its privacy stances. That's especially the case given that Google has worked time and time again to preserve the ad-tracking powers of web cookies, warning that elimination of ubiquitous ad-tracking cookies would mean the end of the web as we know it. And, as might be expected, as soon as word of the 24-to-1 vote on the status of Ping began to leak to the media, Google went into full damage control mode. According to Google, it is simply not the case that they are against Ping or against any new web privacy measures. And this next part has several quotes directly from Google. It says, Rather, it is the case that Google is against the sweeping powers of an authoritarian review group that might cause significant, unnecessary chaos in the development of the web platform. In short, Google says that it is the voice of reason here, fighting against the creeping powers of an authoritarian tech body. And the article goes on, but I'll stop there. So you get the idea. Um, this, this is common today, I think. There's a lot of people that do things and then go through this whole PR spin about what it really means and how they're really the good guys. And, you know, like I've said many times, Google does a lot of great work on security. They even do some interesting work on privacy, but usually what, what they do in privacy is they make it harder for their competitors to track you while simultaneously making it easier or preserving the way that they want to track you. And Google's an ad company. That's plain and simple. That's where they make almost all their money. So anything that would limit their ability to track you and get information on you that they can turn around and then market to their advertisers is a direct threat to their business model. And this is why I cannot recommend basically any Google product, which is a shame. They'd have some really cool stuff. I've used them for many, many years. I was an early adopter for Gmail and Google Docs and all these things. And I am doing my best to extract myself from all of that because I, I just can't trust them anymore. So next up, also speaking of Google, they are, and again, this will seem contradictory, but I'll talk about why maybe not in a minute. Google says it's in the Chrome browser is going to start blocking ads that slow down your browser and therefore your device. And this is an article from Bleeping Computer. Google is rolling out a new feature that allows the Google Chrome web browser to automatically unload web ads that use a disproportionate amount of system resources as part of an effort to reduce the browser's network and CPU footprint. These resource-intensive, heavy ads are known for ruining users' web browsing experience by making web pages load slower than normal, by draining their device's battery, and by consuming mobile data for users without unlimited plans. And here's a quote from Google. It says, quote, As this is a significant intervention, we intend to roll it out gradually throughout the month of September in Chrome 85. We will monitor any breakage or unintended effects of the intervention as we ramp up, unquote. Google is using a thresholds-based system to spot heavy ads, a system that will automatically mark them as causing performance issues if users do not interact with them and they meet these criteria. And they kind of go off to list some rather technical criteria. But basically, if it's sucking down too much computer usage, if the ad itself is too big or drawing too much data, uh, they get flagged and shut down. As Google product manager Marshall Vale said in May, although only 0.3% of all ads displayed online will exceed these very specific thresholds, they are also behind 26% of all network data and 28% of all CPU resources used by online ads. Ad behaviors discouraged by Chrome's new anti-heavy ad intervention system include mining cryptocurrency in browser, loading large or poorly compressed images, and loading large video files before a user gesture. And a final quote from uh, Marshall Vale, he says, quote, In order to save our users' batteries and data plans and provide them with a good experience on the web, Chrome will limit the resources a display ad can use before the user interacts with the ad. When an ad reaches its limit, the ad's frame will navigate to an error page informing the user that the ad has used too many resources, unquote. So again, this is kind of the, you know... <sighs> Two sides of Google. I mean, this is actually, that's a welcome, this is a welcome development, uh, you know, that they're doing this. And I'm sure this is part of their overall PR campaign to seem like they're out there fighting for the consumer. But just realize that this is exactly Google's business model. And also realize that they own the Chrome browser. So 
unlike the ad networks that are placing ads inside web pages and trying to do things within that web page to track you, like dropping third-party cookies and doing fingerprinting and all this crazy stuff, Google doesn't have to do any of that when they own the browser. I would assume that anything you do in Google's Chrome browser, they know. They know all your bookmarks. They know your entire web history. They know every web page you visit, how long you are staying on that web page, how long it takes you to scroll through that web page, where you stop on that web page. I would assume that they know all of that for anything you do in a Chrome browser. So just keep that in mind. All right, now one more article about Google, and this really is good. I'm not sure how effective it will be, but it certainly got its heart in the right place. And this is banning stalkerware, uh, another quote-unquote misrepresentation uh, application. So uh, this is from ThreatPost. Let me read this uh, excerpt. Google is taking the step of prohibiting stalkerware in Google Play, along with apps that could be used in political influence campaigns. Effective October 1st, apps that would allow someone to surreptitiously track the location or online activity of another person will be removed from the Internet Giant's official online store. According to Google, stalkerware is defined as, quote, code that transmits personal information off the device without adequate notice or consent and doesn't display a persistent notification that this is happening, unquote. This includes apps that could be used to monitor texts, phone calls, or browsing history, or GPS trackers specifically marketed to spy or track someone without their consent. Abusers can use such apps for the purposes of harassment, surveillance, stalking, and they can even lead to domestic violence, critics say. And that was something that uh, Eva Galper and I talked about in that uh, EFF interview some time ago. There is, however, a significant exemption with, from these rules. Services designed for parents to track or monitor their underage children. According to Google, quote, Acceptable forms of these apps can be used by parents to track their children. However, these apps cannot be used to track a person, a spouse, for example, without their knowledge or permission unless a persistent notification is displayed while the data is being transmitted, unquote. Stalkerware companies in the past have sold apps that purport to help parents track their young children, even though their capabilities could be used for other purposes. That was the case with three Retina X apps, which last October were barred by the Federal Trade Commission, Mobile Spy, Phone Sheriff, and Teen Shield. Why these three apps were marketed for monitoring mobile devices used by children or for monitoring employees, the FTC determined that, quote, these apps were designed to run surreptitiously in the background and are uniquely suited to illegal and dangerous uses, unquote. Another example is an app called Monitor Miner, which researchers flagged as problematic in March. The Android version of the app gives stalkers near absolute control of targeted devices, going so far as to allow them to capture the unlock pattern or unlock code of the phones, and it gives users the ability to creep on targets missives swapped in Instagram, Skype, and Snapchat, researchers say. Earlier this year, Kaspersky stats showed that the number of stalkerware attacks on mobile devices increased 50% in 2019, showing an upward and continued trend in the emerging threat. So yeah, that's it's obviously the idea of this is great, um, but man, that the whole monitor your kid loophole is really going to be tough to close. I mean, basically you just market your app as for monitoring kids and of course you could use it for anybody hopefully what that means is though that the apps will still have to pop up and say hey uh, this phone is being monitored by this person right now uh, and therefore anything you do and it should list everything that could be monitored will be shown or recorded or logged for this other person to review at some future point so you know, if you're going to track your kids, it should not be a surprise. You should not be doing it surreptitiously. Uh, at least in my personal view, uh, if you want to go that far with your, with your kids, they need to at least know about it. It needs to be a transparent thing. Uh, and that might be the way we block these stalker apps in general from being abused by, um, you know, ex-spouses or ex-boyfriends or girlfriends, or even honestly, current boyfriends, or girlfriends and current spouses is by making sure that the, the fact that you're being tracked and exactly what is being tracked uh, is transparently disclosed. And frankly, should give you the option to say no, at least at the initial time of, uh, uh, of inception. And that would be the time when you sit your kids down and you have that conversation and say, okay, you can have a smartphone, but, uh, you know, we get to know what you're doing on there. And, you know, that, that should lead to bigger conversations about, you know, when you're really going to do it. I mean, are you really going to track it all the time? Are you only going to track it if you believe something's going on, et cetera, et cetera. Those are good conversations you need to have with your kids. But hopefully it would also prevent the stalker case. Now, of course, you know, it's still possible that your phone, you know, has been liberated by the stalker. 
You know, if you live in the house together, it probably wouldn't be that hard to get into the phone. You probably have access to the phone and you could go in and install the software and say, yes, I want to be tracked without that person's knowledge. But then if there needs to be some way for a user to find out that they are being tracked and to still turn and to, to uh, disable that permission. Anyway, it's a cat and mouse game and it's difficult to do, but, but I would personally err on the side of caution and not allowing these apps to do this kind of stalking, at least, at least without uh, transparent permission. All right, next up, I've talked in the past about how the Ring video doorbell, uh, which was the Ring company was bought by Amazon. Uh, I had one a long time ago until Amazon bought them and it started coming out that Amazon was not only selling these to consumers, but selling the whole concept of the surveillance to law enforcement agencies, local police agencies and, and the like, and actually got into kind of got into bed with these guys and, ha- and had the police officer, the police departments kind of push the selling of these things, in some cases, even giving discounts to their constituents for installing these devices. Uh, and then the police agencies having access to these videos. Uh, supposedly, they're supposed to ask for permission before they're allowed to give uh, access to your particular camera. But I think uh, with a proper subpoena or warrant, they could bypass that anyway. Anyway, so the... <laughs> But it, it has been a concern for privacy advocates like myself uh, that it was becoming a surveillance state kind of a thing. Uh, but now uh, some leaked documents have shown that it's actually, uh, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So uh, let me read this article from The Verge. Federal Bureau of Investigation documents warned that owners of Amazon's Ring and similar video doorbells can use the systems which collect video footage sometimes used to investigate crimes in order to watch police instead. Uh, the magazine The Intercept spotted the files in the Blue Leaks data trove aggregated from law enforcement agencies. One 2019 analysis describes numerous ways police and the FBI could use ring surveillance footage, but also cites quote-unquote new challenges involving sensor and camera-equipped smart home devices. Specifically, they can offer an early warning when officers are approaching a house to search it, give away officers' locations in a standoff, or let the owner capture pictures of law enforcement, quote, presenting a risk to their present and future safety, unquote. These are partly hypothetical concerns. The standoff issue, for instance, was noted in a report about motion-activated panoramic cameras, but the FBI points to a 2017 incident where agents approached the house of someone with a video doorbell seeking to search the premises. The resident wasn't home, but saw them approach by watching a remote video feed, then preemptively contacted his neighbor and landlord about the FBI's approach. He may have also, quote, been able to covertly monitor law enforcement activity, unquote, with the camera. This isn't necessarily more information than a security camera would capture, but doorbells like the Ring or Google Nest Hello are pitched as more mainstream devices, and they've also created controversy around police usage of the footage. At one point, Ring offered law enforcement a quote-unquote heat map that showed the concentration of cameras in an area, and it's reportedly partnered with hundreds of law enforcement agencies and helped them encourage users to hand over footage. Critics argue this compromises the privacy of people whose neighbors install the doorbells, and ironically... It looks like law enforcement have some similar concerns. So I think that pretty much says it all. I just thought that was an interesting little twist on the whole ring doorbell surveillance saga. Next up, Facebook uh, are trying to ban deep fake videos ahead of the 2020 election. And as you may recall, deep fake videos are kind of a recent phenomenon uh, because our computers uh, and machine learning and AI technology has gotten to the point where it's so good where they could take a recorded video of somebody and actually superimpose someone else's face on that person. Uh, If you go to the web right now, you can see some rather disturbing examples of this where it obviously sticks out. Like there was one where somebody took Steve Buscemi's face and put it on Jennifer Lawrence's head. She was giving some sort of an awards uh, press conference thing after Oscars or something. Um, And they they took Steve Buscemi's face and mapped it onto hers so... You know, the body, everything else was Jennifer Lawrence, but the face was Steve Buscemi's, and it was really disturbing. But it was obvious. You know, everybody knows that's not her. Uh, the less obvious one is where you might, you know, take a video of someone saying something really awful and then putting, you know, President Trump's face on it or Joe Biden's face on it. You know, the possibilities are really endless. Anyway, so Facebook, you know, understanding that this is a, could be a problem specifically with the election coming up, as trying to ban them. But of course, this is fraught with problems too. So let me read this article from CPO Magazine. Ever since the concept was coined in late 2017, deepfakes have been a matter of public concern. The nightmare scenario has been easy-to-use programs that allow anyone to effortlessly replace one face with another in videos. But at this point, the technology is still not that advanced. 
It takes considerable expensive compute power to make a video of any substantial length, and it requires some advanced technical knowledge, and even when done well is still somewhat off-looking and identifiable as a fake. The technology is expected to advance rapidly, however, and deepfakes might finally be as threatening as they have been billed to be in a year or two. Facebook's early prohibition on them makes sense from that perspective, and also given the fact that today's quote-unquote cheap fakes are still managing to fool some people. Facebook's new deepfake ban would still allow videos such as the infamous quote-unquote drunk footage of House Speaker Nance Pelosi to slip through the cracks, however. The official wording in a company blog post requires banned videos to have been made using quote artificial intelligence or machine learning that merges, replaces, or superimposes content onto a video, unquote. Additionally, the video must quote mislead someone into thinking that a subject of the video said words that they did not actually say, unquote. Exceptions are made for parody or satire since those forms of expression enjoy unique legal protections in the United States, and the videos that have been edited solely to omit or change the order of words. For example, the latter would protect recent videos of presidential candidate Joe Biden that have been selectively edited to imply white nationalist sentiments. If a piece of content like the Biden or Pelosi video examples does not meet Facebook's standard for banning as a deepfake, it is still subject to the company's fact-checking system. This program, which has been active since the election disinformation controversies of 2016, calls upon 50 third-party partner organizations to flag and rate the truthfulness and accuracy of such videos. Facebook then incorporates this feedback in determining how much exposure to allow each piece of content in the newsfeed. However, this fact-checking program has been criticized by some of Facebook's own partners. Some of the partner organizations say there's very little transparency and that they are unclear about how much impact their work is actually having. As Quartz points out, there's another big hole in Facebook's policy. Since it focuses almost entirely on misrepresentation of words and actions of individuals, it overlooks quote-unquote fake news videos that do not involve people. The Quartz article cites a number of fake videos circulating on Facebook in the wake of the Iranian missile attack on U.S. military bases, which uses old footage of unrelated conflicts. Recycled footage may not well be apparent to an average person, particularly if it's edited. Cheap fakes that slip past Facebook's policies can be countered by simply linking to the original video where they were edited from, but response time has consistently been an issue. The average person does not take it upon themselves to verify the source or accuracy of a video, and cheap fakes can take on a life of their own and spread widely before a publisher or platform such as Facebook steps in with mitigating measures. So this is going to be a problem for a long time to come. I don't know how we're going to actually solve this problem, but just the main thing for you to be aware of is that this is possible. It's really hard to trust pictures and videos anymore. And back in the day, it was just pictures, right? Somebody would Photoshop something. Now we got kind of used to knowing that, oh, yeah, that, that, that may not be true. That, that, that picture may not be real. Now take that exact same thing and now just apply it to videos and audio for that matter. Um, there have been programs uh, that I've talked about on the show that take a bunch of samples of someone's audio, like say President Obama's or President Trump, uh, and then takes a computer program to rearrange those words in such a way to to make it sound like that person is saying something that they never, ever said. And as this article points out, most people don't take the time to make sure that anything that they're forwarding or posting on social media is true and accurate. So please, please, just before you post anything like that, double check. Make sure that, you know, especially if it's something that really gets you riled up, chances are unfortunately too good that, that it's not real. Okay, one more quick note here, uh, and then we'll get to the tip of the week. Uh, and this is about the House of Representatives of the United States finally, you know, passing an IoT security bill. Of course, that means it still has to get through the U.S. Senate and signed by the president. But I think there's some hope here. So let me read this article from Duo.com. The House of Representatives has unanimously passed a bipartisan bill setting minimum security requirements for the Internet of Things devices connected to federal networks. The next step, get the Senate to vote on its version of the bill. The Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act would require the National Institute of Standards and Technology to create standards and guidelines for how federal agencies should use and manage IoT purchased by the government. The list includes computers, mobile devices, and pretty much anything that can be connected to the Internet. And this is a quote from Robin Kelly, uh, Representative Robin Kelly, a Democrat of Illinois. She says, IoT devices are more and more common and fulfill greater and greater functions in our government. By establishing some baseline standards for the security of these devices, we will make our country and the data of American citizens more secure, unquote. There are 10 billion IoT devices already in use, and Gartner estimates more than 25 billion devices online by 2021. 
IoT is well entrenched in the federal government, with different agencies heavily relying on the massive amount of data collected in real time by these devices. The State, the State Department, for example, has sensors in all of its embassies around the world collecting air quality data. Internet-connected devices make a lot of promises about all the things that can be done, but they're also highly vulnerable to attack. Despite the growing threat against these devices, there currently are no national standards for IoT security. And by the way, California in California, there is one, which is welcome, but that's correct. There are no national standards until maybe this. The minimum security standards are for devices purchased and used by the federal government. Theoretically, manufacturers could have two versions of the device, one that meets or exceeds the minimum security standards as defined by NIST that the government can buy, and one that doesn't have to worry about the government requirements and is available to anyone. In reality, it's much more likely that IoT vendors will adopt the same requirements across the board instead of trying to support two different versions of their products. The hope is that the minimum security requirements will become default industry standard that would also apply to commercial devices, says uh, Senator Mark Warner, who introduced the Senate version of the bill. And a quote from Senator Warner, he says, quote, Frankly, manufacturers today just don't have the appropriate market incentives to properly secure the devices that they make and sell, unquote. IoT manufacturers will have to develop basic patching and remediation capabilities for their devices so that vulnerabilities can be fixed. Vendors would have to notify agencies of any vulnerabilities that could leave the government vulnerable to attack. The ability to fix vulnerabilities when they are found is key for IoT security. While there are higher-end devices which can be updated, but not always easily, a large number of IoT devices do not receive security updates at all. Most of them don't even have a mechanism that will allow for updates. There should be a way for agencies to install updates, and there has to be a way for vendors to receive vulnerability, vulnerability disclosure reports. Okay, so <laughs> uh, as I like to say, the S in IoT is for security, meaning there is none. Um, and hopefully this bill will make it through. Obviously, it has a lot of support. It really, really should not be controversial. This is in everybody's best interest. Uh, I will tell you, it will likely cause some of these devices to become more expensive. And it probably won't apply to existing devices, meaning that anything before this bill goes into effect is potentially insecure. And of course, again, as this article states, it's really only a requirement for, for um, devices bought by the federal government. But as the article also says, it's unlikely that these manufacturers are going to create two different versions of their products. They'll, it'll just be too expensive. So if they bother making one for the government, then the one they make for everybody else should be just as secure. And the two things they talk about there are really key, the baseline standards. There has to be a way for these devices to be updated, and it should be fairly easy to do so. In fact, it really ought to be automatic. And there's got to be some way for the manufacturers of these devices to let you know that your device has a problem and needs to be updated. So this is a, a possible great first step, and I hope this uh, goes all the way to becoming a law. So before I leave the story, just to, to kind of bring the the point home, you might think, you know, IoT, you know, it's video doorbells and maybe security cameras or smart refrigerators. And, you know, like you might think, you know, how, how much do I really need to worry about the security of these things? Well, any of those things on your network can act as a beachhead for the bad guys to get to other things, your network. It's your router and firewall are really, that's all that's keeping the bad guys out of, out of your home network. So if they can compromise, if they, if they could reach through and compromise one of those devices, now they're inside your house, basically. And to even bring that even more home, just as a couple examples, there was a, uh, a casino in Las Vegas who was hacked. And the way they were hacked was through an IOT fish tank thermometer. So you can bet that this little fish tank thermometer, which was, hey, it's on the web. I can check it with my smartphone app. But it was also on the casino's network. And once somebody got through the probably horrible or non-existent security of this little cool internet-enabled fish tank thermometer, uh, they were able to use that as a beachhead and then uh, go on to further hack the casino itself. And one more, uh, if you remember a few years ago, Target was hacked. Uh, and, and a lot of the data was exfiltrated from them. And the way they got into Target was they hacked the HVAC system, which someone thought would be really cool to put on the network too, and if, did not have proper security. And again, someone was able to hack the weakest link. And then once they were in the network, they could use that as a base of operations to get to other things. So this is a really important bill. We really need these basic standards. So uh, let's all hope and pray that this gets accepted. All right, now for the tip of the week. Um, and while this is 
focused on Windows users uh, and doesn't really apply to Mac users. Thank goodness. Uh, you'll find out in a minute why. As a Mac user, you'll probably still be interested to hear, if you've certainly if you've never used a Windows device, how crappy it is to, to deal with some of this stuff and why you should count yourself lucky or smart as a Mac user because you won't have to deal with this. So Microsoft Windows comes uh, pre-installed on all PCs, all personal computers, that are anything basically that's not an Apple product. Uh, Linux is out there for some, but it's still pretty rare. So it's basically either Windows or it's Mac OS. And Windows PCs, you know, tend to be cutthroat market of very low margins. And the way a lot of these manufacturers have made some money back uh, or added more profit to their things is not in cost directly to you, the consumer, but by pre-installing a lot of, has many names, crapware, bloatware, adware, trialware, all this various types of software that nobody wants on their computer, but companies pay them to put it there. Um, Norton antivirus or whatever. These are, those are very common. They come with a pre-installed, uh, pre-activated with, you know, a three month or a six month free trial after which you need to pay. And a lot of people, especially when it comes to antivirus, they go, oh boy, you know, I, I better pay that or I'll be in trouble. Uh, of course, that's not true. Uh, Windows Defender, which comes free with Microsoft is perfectly adequate and you really don't need to spend money on those other products. And as I've said many times before, those other products actually can cause more problems than they solve. So, um, but you know, also there's, you know, you've probably gotten Candy Crush and, you know, and all these other pre-installed games and other utilities uh, pre-installed in your computer that pop up incessantly as you first start to use a brand new computer, you know, trying to get you to sign up for subscriptions or buy products or go from the free version to the fully paid version. It's just a nightmare. According to this one uh, article I read, it said that um, one study said that a computer without bloatware starts up 104% faster, shuts down 35% faster, and has more battery life compared to a computer with the bloatware. Now, it turns out that there's a couple things you can do about this, and that's the, that's the tip of the week. The first one, the easiest one, but it's unfortunately something that you pretty much have to do right when you buy the PC or it becomes kind of untenable. But there's this feature in Windows 10 that came out not that long ago uh, called Fresh Start. And it makes the process much simpler than it used to be. Uh, you used to have to, you know, try to find some way to download a clean copy of Windows, make sure that the pre-installed license key that came with your computer could be applied to it, you know, reinstall the OS. It was just kind of a pain in the butt. But now, built into Windows is this Fresh Start capability. And I'll tell you how to use it here in a second. But basically... Uh, you get to go in and say, I want you to reinstall the operating system and it will pull it from the internet for you. And when you do that, I want you to not install all the crap that came with this PC originally. Basically what this will let you do is start fresh uh, and give you a pristine copy of Windows 10 without all the crapware. Now there's some downside to this. There, there are a few things that are pre-installed that might be good. Like for instance, there might be custom drivers and sometimes, you know, Dell and Asus and whatever do have kind of handy... Uh, utilities built in to help them do remote debugging on your machine and things like that. But honestly, most of it's, most of it's just junk. You also have the, uh, the opportunity to preserve your user data. So if you had done this after you bought the PC and used it for a while, uh, supposedly uh, it would keep all your data, but it would still remove all the applications that you installed as well, which means you would have to go then and reinstall all those applications. And, you know, you would hope that all the data that was supposedly preserved would just come back and be there. But, you know, that gets a little dicey. In fact, I, I was going to test this myself, and I went to do this on my Windows laptop. And, you know, once I saw that it basically was going to remove everything that I installed as well as all the crapware that came with it, I changed my mind and went for option number two, which I'll get to in a minute. So before I give you the kind of instructions for this, there's a couple other caveats. Uh, when you do reinstall this, you will lose out on some other things. Like, uh, I guess apparently Dell computers come with a free 20 gig extra uh, Dropbox space, you know, which is a pretty good deal, you know, that will be gone. So you need to, if there's a, like a coupon code or something that comes with that, you need to write that down. And similarly, if there's any other, any other software that's pr uh, on your computer that has a, a license key, I would make sure you've got those license keys uh, set aside in case you need to reinstall it later. Like, you know, for instance, Microsoft Office or something like that. And if you've used this uh, computer long enough to authorize this computer for iTunes use, which I don't know if that's even still a thing on Windows, but uh, you'll have to deauthorize this computer first and then reauthorize it later. Uh, otherwise, unfortunately, the only way you could fix that 
later with Apple, if you've, you know, that you can only authorize five, five computers. So if you keep forgetting to deauthorize old computers, you'll eventually run out. Uh, and the only way to fix that is to deauthorize all computers and then go back and one by one at a time reauthorize the computers you still have. Uh, and lastly, you know, even though it says that it promises to keep all your personal files, I would certainly do a backup of all your important files before you uh, do this procedure. Uh, now, the procedure is actually pretty straightforward. You basically just go to the Start menu and look for, uh, I think this one says to go to the Windows Defender Security Center. Uh, there's a Drive Performance and Health there in the sidebar. And under Additional Info, you can see this Fresh Start section. Uh, you go to that and you click Get Started, and then you know there's a button there that says Get Started, and it'll walk through your choices. And the, the key choice there is, do you want to reinstall all the things that were initially installed on this PC when you got it? And you say no. By default, it's yes. Um, so it would just kind of be an overlay reinstall of the OS, but uh, in this case, for what you want to do, you want to uh, click that box or actually flip that switch so that it's a clean, pristine version of Windows 10 without all that crapware. So option two, uh, if you've got a Windows PC you've been using for some time and don't want to worry about uh, accidentally uninstalling a bunch of stuff you've already done or maybe losing a bunch of settings you've already made, there's another option, and it's called App Buster. There's a company called O and O, like the letter capital O. O and O App Buster. They make several things, but one of the things they make is a free tool called App App Buster. And if you install this app, it it's it's better than. I mean, you could you could personally, and which I've done on my laptop, you could go and you know go open the Windows uninstall window under settings and go through and manually pick each thing you want to install and uninstall it. Uh, that's what I did. It's kind of a pain, but the, what this thing will do for you, it will kind of, it will take all the apps that are currently installed. It will put them in nice little categories, uh, kind of let you know what type of apps these things are. And then you can check off multiple ones at a time and basically do a bulk delete, which is really handy. So, uh, while it doesn't really go, unfortunately you say, this is, this is crapware. This is not, you still have to do that investigation yourself. Uh, at least you don't have to go through them, do them painstakingly one at a time. And unlike Windows, uh, the Windows settings where it just does them in alphabetical order, this tool at least kind of segregates them into buckets. So you can kind of see what types of things, applications these are to determine whether or not you want to remove them or not. So again, that's O&O Software. If you go, Their website is www-oo-software.com. And when you go there, there's a menu there for products. They've got quite a few. Uh, what you want is App Buster. So of course, the next question here is, how do I know whether I could remove something or not? Because honestly, it's it's not always obvious. I mean, if it's Candy Crush or some goofy thing like that, it's pretty straightforward whether or not you want to remove it. But some of these things look like kind of important or valid applications, and you're, you're kind of worried that if you remove it, that it's going to break something. Uh, so one more part of this tip is to go to a website called shouldiremoveit.com. All will all run together, shouldiremoveit.com. Uh, it looks like maybe they've got a little app you could download. I'm not sure I would bother with that, but there's a little search area in the upper right. And so, you know, take the name of that application you're not sure of, throw it up in that search bar, uh, and you will at least get some feedback on what other people think about this and what this app is and what it does and whether or not it's something you should remove or not. Hence, should I remove it? So hopefully with all these things together, you can go through and clean up that PC, get it to start up and shut down faster, stop sucking battery, <laughs> battery resources, for things you really don't need, and maybe even get rid of some stuff that's causing problems. I know I rattled off a lot of stuff, so uh, if you want to go to firewallsdontstopdragons.com, I will have a blog article about this um, that should be available to you. You can get um, get all the links that you need there and uh, see the instructions. And if you're already a newsletter subscriber, then it should already be sitting in your mailbox. <laughs> So as I said at the beginning of the show, October 5th is special not only because it will be the day when I announce the 15 winners of my book giveaway. Uh, personally, it will be a big day, and that is because I will semi-retire on that day. I've been a software engineer for almost 28 years now, uh, and I've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed being a software engineer. But, you know, due to COVID, the company I'm currently working for, which who I've been with you know, for 15 plus years now, you know, like everybody else is going through some tough times with, with the pandemic and, you know, sales are down and they have transparently said that they need to cut costs, which in the past they have not done. So I think it's very admirable that they're doing this and uh, they're going to start off with voluntary attrition. And one of the things they offered was an early retirement package. And I was not expecting this. I was not planning to semi-retire yet, 
but you know, once I crunched the numbers, I decided I had to do it. So anyway, it's a big thing for me personally. And what that should mean is I should be able to focus even more uh, on the privacy and security stuff that I love so much. And frankly, I, you know, I want to take some time off. I've, I'm a, I'm in probably an, an enviable position these days to not work for some time. So I'm going to take some time off and do a whole lot of nothing probably, uh, which really sounds wonderful. But, you know, I want to ruminate a little bit, figure out what I want to be when I grow up. I'm going to be thinking about, you know, some really fun second career, encore career kind of options. And fun being the operative word, I uh, will be able to kind of pick and choose a little bit, which will be great. And, you know, we'll see, uh, what, we'll see what else I do. But um, I'll be able to focus on this. Maybe I'll write another book. So, uh, you know, hey, if you got, if you got any ideas of some really cool privacy or security careers or a, you know, book you might want me to write, hey, drop me a note at uh, feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. So again, just a reminder, the, the book giveaway is over on October 3rd. You've got about a little less than two weeks left to do it. Uh, so go to bit.ly, B-I-T slash firewalls4. Uh, you can find that link uh, on my website. You can find that link in the show notes. And you can register for a win to uh, register to win a, a free signed copy of the book or a free digital copy of the book. So the interesting note I did say at the top of the show how I was expecting to get my box of books today. It actually arrived while recording this podcast. Uh, if you go back, I, I may have actually there may have been a doorbell ring in there somewhere in the background that you might have heard. So I've got them. I've got my first ten books, and uh, it's really cool. So I had so glad to actually have it in my hand. Got some great interviews coming up. Next week will be one of them. Uh, Corey Doctorow will be here. We'll be talking about the whole Apple versus Epic thing and Fortnite saga. And he's got some great perspectives, some really interesting and smart perspectives on that. So we're going to get into that next week. I've also got an inter uh, interview coming up with a couple of folks from EFF uh, about student surveillance. Uh, you know, now that we're all working from home, a lot of schools and universities are forcing their students to basically install spyware. And it's really, really getting kind of nasty. So we're going to talk about that and all the implications with those guys. So if you haven't already, now would be a great time to, to subscribe so you don't miss any of that good stuff. And if, while you're there, or if you haven't already, I would love to get a nice, big, positive five-star review from you. Uh, that really goes a long way, So uh, especially on Apple. And that'll wrap it up this week. Thank you very much for tuning in. I hope you're all staying safe out there. I know we got flu season come up. Make sure you get your flu shot. And just keep sticking to the sticking to the same old thing, you know. Keep keep that mask on when you're out. Don't go out any more than you need to. Stay away from big, you know, big gatherings of people, and hunker down and wait for that vaccine. All right, everybody. Until next week, stay safe, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.